you're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, HAIMA, is asking anyone who suffered damage from the recent storm, the Kona Lo, to report it to their respective counties. Hawaii Island and Maui took the brunt of the winds and rain. Parts of the Valley Isle are still under a water conservation advisory through tomorrow. Crews are working to declare debris strewn around by strong gusts and flooded conditions. On the Big Island, some areas saw hail. Other parts saw up to eight inches of rain. This morning, we talked to Hawaii County Civil Defense Administrator Talmadge Magno, who says this morning the county is dispatching three teams to assess the damage across the island. Efforts were underway yesterday to clear roads of fallen trees and debris, but at this point, all highways are open. Here's Talmadge. We know that the Waimea, Ohala areas had heavy rains all the way down into Kailua Kona. There was flooding throughout those areas. Right now, as far as damages in the flooding that we've seen so far, it's kind of around the affected category where, yeah, you know, it came in, maybe come into the house, but nothing that we've seen is destroyed at this point. And the wind damage seems to be focused around, again, from Waimea to Honoka'a on the Hamakua coast. And that area sustained a lot of wind damage, dropping a lot of trees. So the power companies, the utility companies are having to work on their lines. The county crews are clearing as well as the state highways clearing the, the roadways and the lines to make sure that things can go back up. So you know, some of that work is still being done, and then you know assessments will be done in those areas that we finally open up and, and can see what, what damage are sustained. I understand that there are some areas that uh, still don't have power? Yes. To what degree, I'm not sure. I think I got a message early in the evening that one area in Kau was brought back online last night. But there's just small pockets of areas that are out right now. How about our highways? How did they fare? Let's see. We had um, Highway 19, which is a Hamakua route. That was obstructed by large trees coming down, mainly eucalyptus in that area between Honoka'a and Waimea. And then we had flooding on Highway 190, that Waimea to Kona Upper Road. And also uh, the, the section of Highway 19 that goes um, from Waimea down to Kwai High that had several areas where flooding crossed the road and that road was closed down for a short period of time, as well as the Queen Kahumana section of Highway 19 uh, near Puoko. Uh, that, that area was crossed by some, some uh, rivers overflowing, drainages overflowing in those areas. We haven't heard of, you know, any injuries or, or, or uh, you know, serious cases, so we were lucky. Yes, and we made that, you know, exact request to make sure that it, it, nothing did happen, and so I, I think we uh, we were lucky and people were, you know, making sure that they weren't going across uh, fast-flowing water to get in that kind of a bad situation or, you know, with the winds and so forth, you know, paying attention, not messing around with down the wires and so forth so uh, yeah if, if we come out of this with no injuries or fatalities I, I think it was um, you know pretty good for the community as far as their understanding of what the hazards are. We, we know everybody is just marveling at the sight of snow uh, up there on the Mauna but they had some pretty strong winds I think uh, like 100 mile an hour winds. That's what I've seen you know that was actually what was forecasted and I think they had at least at those levels and then you know we saw some 80 mile an hour reports just down slope from the summits as well so you know in the forest near the forested areas and so um, 
some areas, especially above Hamakua, uh, it'd be interesting what, what damage happened in the forest there. How are your employees doing? How's your staff? You know, because, you know, you folks were pulling in some pretty intense hours, you know, when we had Mauna Loa erupt. Uh, you didn't get too much of a break, you know, and then you folks were out on alert with this storm. Right. We haven't had a break, and we actually had a bout of some kind of bug. Everybody tested. We were all cleared of COVID, but we had a bug come through our office and at the tail end of the lava. And then, you know, folks had to take days off because of sickness. But, you know, everybody came back and we dealt with the storm. And so now uh, we're doing okay. Well, well, let's look forward to a, a quiet new year. Right. We can hope for that, definitely. And then anything else you want to get out there to our listeners? Families are probably still, you know, cleaning up from the mess. Uh, but at this point, uh, the access points, the roads are open, and it's just a matter of re- reporting any damage that they've got. Right. So go to the county website to access the portal to log in, and then, you know, we'll make contact with you folks. I mean, the community that has sustained damage always make sure that if things are missed you know as far as in their planning make sure they make the adjustments so that their family plans their business plans are intact and adjusted so that it it will account for this kind of situations and airports and harbors all good yes well the national weather service said we should have good weather fair weather through the weekend so um, everybody should enjoy the, the weather and enjoy the holidays That was Talmadge Magno, Hawaii County Civil Defense Administrator. He urges families and businesses who were impacted by this latest storm to report it on the county website as soon as possible. Officials need to determine if the estimates reach a threshold to be able to tap into federal aid. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we focus on the family of Sun Yat-sen, the former president of the Republic of China. Before he became China's leader, Sun was a student at both Iolani and Oahu College, now known as Punahou School. Uh, Sun Yat-sen's older brother came to Hawaii first in the late 1800s at the age of 17. He worked on a farm owned a shop, and eventually became one of the wealthiest Chinese in Hawaii. He had extensive real estate holdings, a Maui ranch. He also owned many businesses. Uh, Sun Yat-sen was 13 when he and his mother moved from the Guangdong province to join his older brother. Known and respected for his wisdom and generosity to the community, the Sun home became a haven for both extended family and revolutionaries devoted to making China as a republic free from the rule of Manchus. 
Uh, by the end of his life, Sun Yat-sen's older brother had used his entire fortune to support efforts to establish a new China. For today's Backyard Quiz, what is the name of Sun Yat-sen's older brother? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Police overtime, that is the subject of today's reality chat. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra is on the line today. Good morning, Christina. Hey, Catherine. Good to be here. I like your headline, graveyard shift, guarding the morgue. That's right. Uh, Honolulu, for the last year and a half or so, has been paying uh, police officers over a million dollars in overtime uh, to guard the trailers at the morgue. Um, so those trailers were... Uh, for sort of overflow at the medical examiner's office brought in uh, in the fall of last year. Um, the medical examiner's office really didn't have the space. Um, they said that because of COVID restrictions, people weren't picking up the remains of their loved ones um, immediately. So they were kind of hanging on to them for a while. So they needed the space. And so they also said, therefore, they need protection for these remains. Um, so they hired HPD to provide that. So these are just parked right outside the ME's office there in Ivalet then? Pretty much, yeah. There's an officer there 24-7. Um, and so we're paying these officers um, an overtime rate. So they, depending on their rank, make between 50 and almost $100 per hour. And I know during the height of COVID, you know, we did see some scary scenes on the mainland in some of the big cities like, you know, New York City where... They just had a lot of COVID, you know, victims. Um, but, you know, right. we're kind of through most of that crisis. Right. The medical examiner's office said the trailers weren't necessarily because of like a mass casualty event. It was more so um, because of just having to hang on to the bodies for a longer period of time because the restrictions on gatherings and people weren't really having the same kind of funerals, they said. Um, but the need for the trailers um, will dissipate once the medical examiner's office is done with its renovations in the springtime. And they said then the officers will also leave at that point. But I'm sure just that extra the special duty shifts, you know, add to the already strain on our officers because, you know, we're down like what, a few hundred police officers, right? Yeah, there's definitely been an officer shortage for a long time, and the department has struggled to fill those positions. So this does, you know, take one more officer out of commission, um, you know, every shift. Um, it is an overtime shift, so that's not a person that's taken from their normal patrol shift, per se, but, you know, it's one more officer that's occupied at a time when, you know, neighborhoods are really calling for more boots on the ground and more police protection for their neighborhoods. Okay, so this is going to go on for a few more months until the 
medical examiner's office uh, that all that uh, renovation is PAL? That's what they said, yeah. And, you know, in the meantime, there's kind of polarizing opinions on whether this is necessary. Um, on one hand, the city said, you know, we want to do everything that we can to protect the remains of people's loved ones in these trailers. We don't want anything to happen to them for the trailer to get unplugged. It is refrigerated, so it needs to stay cool in there. Um, and, you know, they said that it's a necessary expense. It's over a million dollars, but, you know, they, they felt it was necessary. On the other hand, um, I talked to some former police officers who said they feel like the city could have hired private security for much cheaper. I looked at one job posting for Allied Universal. Um, they're hiring guards at about $17 per hour. So compared to the, the 50 to 100 per hour that HPD charges, it would be a lot cheaper. But, uh, you know, it's a judgment call. And the city said they'd rather have HPD right on hand to prevent anything from but there is, there is that hidden cost, though, right? Because uh, the police overtime, uh, my understanding is what they get, that gets factored into their pension? It does, yeah. And we did uh, a little look at that at Civil Beat last year, looking at how police overtime really significantly boosts some officers' pension payments when they um, kind of jack up their, quote-unquote, high three, their last three years um, of service. If they make as much money as they can, they can really boost their pension uh, throughout the rest of their lifetime. So this, uh, even though it's pandemic, you know, federal pandemic money that's funding these overtime shifts at the medical examiner's office, it does uh, factor into their pension for life. Right. So that means an added cost uh, to taxpayers going forward. Yes. The city does have to pay uh, an extra allotment when people um, engage in what's called pension spiking, what I described. So it, it has cost the city millions of dollars in recent years, according to a, a recent city audit. Yeah, well, we'll see, uh, I guess, what happens when the money runs out here, and uh, hopefully the, uh, like I said, the renovation gets done, um, and it takes some long and hard uh, looks at, at what we're doing here. But thank you so much, Christina. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, that was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. You can read uh, the full story at civilbeat.org. Support local news coverage on HPR. Navy officials have announced they will open a clinic to address health issues possibly associated with jet fuel exposure. What we want to happen is for people to come in, find out what's happening to them, and work them up thoroughly so that there is a connection we can pursue it. Meanwhile, we'll be working very closely with the Department of Health and EPA to get the defueling plan approved. It's not yet approved. It's with the Department of Health and they're reviewing it. Once that's approved, we're going to do iterative planning in partnership with the Department of Health and the EPA to find ways to move the timeline left. First, there's a technical, engineering, methodical and deliberate removal of the fuel. And the other is active listening, compassionate and empathetic conversations with our military families and the community. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. 
The University of Hawaii at Manoa is celebrating a very unique award. Its eSports team has been named the top collegiate program in the world this year. The honor takes into account the competitive success of the team and its education and interaction with the industry. The program was started in 2018 by Sky Kawiloa and gives students the opportunity to apply their education to their passion to pursue esports as a career. HPR's Casey Harlow talked with Kawiloa about what the award means for the program. Hey, Sky, congratulations on the win. I guess let's just start with the esports awards. What is it? Yeah, so the esports awards is a relatively newish incarnation within the industry that recognizes all sort of different facets of this business that is really global esports. That's looking at professional organizations, teams, coaches, analysts. It really runs the gamut. Um, and it's also expanding into other facets like mobile gaming. And I think they're going to be moving into expanding the award show. It's a very long award show. I think it runs, it runs two days just because the categories are so vast. So yeah, it is the premier esports or the awards granting body for the esports industry. Collegiate Program of the Year. How significant is it for UH to get this award? Getting the Collegiate Program of the Year, yeah, it's, it's quite humbling, I think, overall. Just because, you know, as, as the director, you know, it was something that, it was never something that was, you know, a goal for me. It was always something that, you know, I thought was really wonderful that the industry had. And it was always great to see other programs you know, like, you know, Boise and, and Maryville, kind of the, the premier programs, especially on the competitive side of getting recognition. But for me, you know, it is, like I said, it's very humbling to know that we're getting recognition in this way because it is sort of validation, I think, for the work that has been, been done by, you know, our students, our alumni, our leadership at UH Esports, the, the task force, the different uh, faculty, that take part and help, you know, help guide what I'm doing as well. But it's just validation really overall that what we have been doing has been, has been right. Like it, it is the right path. And then, and then ultimately it means that, you know, there is going to be greater expectations and visibility of our program. It, like, like we haven't had it already. I mean, we of course have been hitting milestones year after year, but this one is certainly um, a, a peak. And how is this award determined? I mean, is there a panel that looks at the competitive success of a school's esports teams, or is it based on the quality of the school's courses? Yeah, so to get nominated for the Collegiate Program of the Year, you know, it's a really good question where it fits between the criteria of being a competitive program versus being a program that is broader in scope. I think originally a lot of the, the nominees, or at least the winners in the past, had been chosen based upon their competitive proudness, their ability to win championships. That has been, a, I think, a metric that has kind of always been there in the background. With this win, it's really been an interesting way, I think, from the esports awards and the panels themselves. Because again, the awards were really wanted to understand beyond competition, what ways could a program be recognized? And that is really the the gist of what is what has happened is that the program has really seen our uh, UH Sports as offering a very unique opportunity for our students to engage with the industry. And that's really been the mission of my directorship at UH Sports is to say, yeah, we have this we have a wonderful set of teams which are, are you know very competitive. But what really makes UH Sports stand out is the fact that we can engage industry in a way that is really unprecedented 
You went from offering a class in the spring of 2018 to where it is now, you know, semi-pro competitive teams and courses being offered at other UH campuses. Have you had time to reflect on how far UH's esports program has come? Yeah, it, it yeah, it, it, it's been, you know, a, a, a trek of, you know, a number of years. You know, technically our program began roughly around 2018 when, when the Mountain West Conference asked our athletic department if we wanted to field a team for Overwatch. Kind of came from the, came out of the blue and, you know, we were able to summon the team in two weeks and get our six students competing against other Mountain West Conference members. And that was, you know, if we were going to say, you know, when was the pinpoint of the origins of our program, it was, it was that particular moment. But we've, all, we've also had many sort of like starts of the program. Was, there was never an official beginning of the program. There's always a, a series of wonderful milestones that we've hit but you know technically that was the, the start of it all and yeah i do often reflect about you know just how much we've changed and how much we've grown and it is yeah i mean it is humbling but at the same time the award is also a recognition of how amazing and i, I go back to the example of overwatch league events of how amazing it has been for the different departments and the different entities on campus just to work together to pull off the Overwatch events. Because, I mean, of course, you know, <clears throat> the USC sports program was what carried the, the events throughout the, the partnership, but the meetings and the, the discussions and the, the planning that were the precursors to, to successfully getting that partnership off the ground was, was a very heavy lift of, of a number of different departments. And of course, also to get the internship group, right? That was, among all the different things that we had in that partnership with Overwatch League, the fact that we're able to push through close to 40 students or well, more than 40 students through the Overwatch League internships has been, has drawn tremendous attention, continues to draw a lot of attention. And so, you know, it's the fact that we had a task force, an esports task force that I was able to consult with. And then finally, we're able to work with the College of Social Sciences through Access, which is a, a community engagement part of the College of Social, Social Sciences. The fact that we're able to get those internships going, I mean, it speaks volumes of just the collaborative work that was pulled off here across the different departments at UH. So it's not just a recognition, I think, of UH esports, but it's a recognition of really the amazing shared effort and shared vision of what esports can mean for, for UH. Now that you've gotten this award, what's next? Where do you go from here? Yeah, so the plan moving on from here is to, you know, of course, provide a really wonderful shared experience of competition for the students. And I think also moving forward, my, my goal as a director is to say that I need to start to also find, figure out ways in which I can get a, a greater, broader perspective, or at least a, a greater, broader contingent of students who still are sort of on the outlier, because right now I'm just creating a program in which I am sort of shouting, saying, you know what, we have these wonderful roles that you can fulfill if you're interested in esports. And when I do that, I do get students that are able to identify what they would like to do and, and come in and just do the work. But, you know, I'd like to start to reach out to students who, you know, may not know exactly how to intersect their interests with our, our interests at UH Sports. And one of those may be, number one, you know, reaching out to more international students on our campus. I do have a lot of plans, really intentional plans of targeting different uh, cohorts on our campuses to take part in our program. That was UH Manoa Esports Program Director Sky Cauello talking with HPR's Casey Harlow.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the immersive exhibition, Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, Exploring the Human Connection to Nature. Now on view, details at honolulumuseum.org. Today on The Daily, with gun violence, now the number one cause of death for American children, the stories of three of those children told not through their deaths, but through the lives that they lived. I'm Michael Bavaro, and that's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. This week we are looking at Limu stories as the year of the Limu draws to a close. Today we spotlight a community program that marshals volunteers across the state to help restore a fish pond. It's a sea turtle pond to be exact. Pahonu is out Waimanalo Way. Kimi Onakani works with the Waimanalo Limu Hui to organize the monthly community work days to help rebuild the stone walls of the pond and to encourage the growth of Limu patches in the bay. Kane explains to the group, once they make their limulei, the garlands are wrapped around large stones to be placed around the fish pond enclosure, growing food for our honu. The intention of the limulei is to really get some of this really spore-rich limu. But we are very specific. We're looking for the limu that has the spores that are ready to just put it out there, right? So we put it out into the water. So part of that natural process is to be consumed by the animals that's in the water, right? And that kind of helps to push that to the system and then move that out into the bay. Uh, limu for us is one of the fundamentals when it comes to uh, the health of our bay. We are, used to have a lot of limu in Waimanalo. Uh, without keeping the, the ecosystem in, in check and in balance, we run into a lot of invasive algaes now none of the fish really care to eat that. So our limu is very specific. They like what they like, and when they don't have it, they just cease to exist. And so it's important that we uh, think about that as we progressively work in restoration of the bay. And, you know, it's a learning experience for all those who gather here every month, and you're rewarded with a deeper understanding about the community connection to the land and the sea. Standing along the shoreline, we take deep breaths before beginning the work in the ocean. Reflect on your intentions, reflect on your blessings that you shared earlier, reflect on the, what do you want your life to do? What is it going to serve in this space? What is the next hour or so of your time going to serve? Yeah. Think about those things. Like a 
Well, Kamiona Kane says the hui is just getting back to gathering in larger numbers as we work our way out of this pandemic. A core group has kept up with the work during the shutdown, but it's looking forward to raising the awareness about the work they do and the appreciation for environmental solutions that Hawaiian culture offers. We're all a part of the same. There's a few of us that focus on limu specifically, and then there's a group of us that focus on pahonu and the restoration of rock work. And so tell us, how often are you out here? We are out here weekly. So we come out in smaller groups during the week, and then we host different kind of organizational work out here for community members, schools, uh, the general public. And then we come out on the monthly, on the second when, second Saturdays is with uh, our, our volunteer days. And I've seen you out here on Sundays too, building sometimes. Yeah, that's correct. We've had some adjustments in our schedule uh, as we work on other projects around the island. Uh, and so we, if we don't have to be at those specific sites, then we'll have the opportunity to come out here on Sundays again. Sunday was our normal work day before the pandemic, yeah. And then uh, we carried through that and now as things start to open up, we're starting to uh, develop more educational learning spaces around the island with different partners and groups. And so we uh, teach holly work in other areas and that's kind of what we commit our Sundays to as well. And so uh, what's the plan for today? You folks have made some limule mm -hmm. and you're going to put some out on the wall? Yeah, the intention for us today is to, uh, now that now that some of the, the participants have, have woven their leis, their lei limu, we're going to go ahead and take them out to Pahonu. Uh, we will put them out into the space the same way that we would be doing out here by wrapping them around a stone and then going out and giving them an opportunity to do it within the pond wall and that pond sanctuary space that we are creating. Uh, and then from there, we'll most likely be doing some additional rock work uh, just to end some of the work day. And then uh, we'll, we'll go into some just sharing after that. When I last saw it, it was pretty built up, yes. <laughs> but we have the winter waves. Yeah, yeah, we, we've definitely been impacted by a recent north swell. Uh, and that's really why we build. We build through about 10, 9, 10 months a year and, and really practice and hone our skill set just to be tested by this winter swell. And so part of our practice is this understanding that it works in tandem with what the elements are doing. And that's the greatest teacher for us is what happens in the ocean and how that impacts us is it gives us an opportunity to reflect on how we've built. Uh, what engineering styles we might need to be in more considerate of. And uh, then we go back and we reweave it. And then as far as the turtles returning to this area. Yes, turtles for us is a very important piece of Pahonu, obviously. Um, it's, it's significant for us to see the turtles returning. We also recognize though that just because we've built a wall that's called Pahonu and the pond called Pahonu doesn't mean that the, the ecosystem itself can sustain the turtles in this space. And so part of the function of limu and putting limu back and really working the community into the understandings of the ecology within the bay is really helpful for us to determine how much we can hold as far as our turtles. We want to create an environment for them that they feel comfortable and they feel safe in and that they can be fed from. Uh, and that's all kinds of things that we're working on in terms of trying to bring the turtles back into place here. Yeah. So it's not so much a pond where the turtles nest or anything like that, but you are seeing them 
more in numbers in this area? Correct, yes. This is not known to be a pond where they would come up and beach and nest. Uh, what we see as far as sand is, is very seasonal, and so that's not a, a known space for them. We are seeing them come back in, in numbers on the outer skirts of the pond, and what we like to think is that we're creating enough ecosystem from the rock wall that's bringing in some of the limu functions, and these turtles are very inquisitive and coming back into that nature. Uh, we also think that some of these turtles might be the turtles that are being released from the, the sea project that we do at Sea Life Park, the turtle release project. And, uh, you know, this is where they were released into the ocean. So we, we understand that turtles naturally kind of migrate and then they come back to that same space. And so that might be what we're seeing as well. And it's Limu from Sea Life Park, right? <laughs> it is. It's Limu from Sea Life Park. It's Limu from uh, the bay here. It's, it's about connecting all of those resources back together and just continuing to build on sustainable relationships. So if people want to get involved and help out with this project? The best way to get involved with project work that we do here is to follow the Waimanalo Limuhui uh, on Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, definitely send us some emails or send us any kind of messaging when you're interested. Generally, we have a work day for Limu every month, and then we have a work day for Pahonu every month, and it's open to the public to participate for sure. That was Kamiona Kane, a member of the Waimanalo Limuhui, who leads volunteers out to the Pahonu Fish Pond to help restore the ecosystem of the bay. It's a monumental effort by many hands. You can look for links to the group on the conversation page of our website later today if you're interested in learning more. And a reminder, they do like to start promptly at 8 a.m. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We've got a little sandpiper for you today whose rattling call gives you a clue to their name. With calls from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the Zeno Canto, University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart has this week's Manu Minute. Akekeke, also known as ruddy turnstones when you're not in Hawaii, are medium-sized sandpipers. They're about the size of a mina bird. You can often see them foraging in small flocks, usually along rocky shorelines, but also in mud flats, fields, and lawns. Our birds in Hawaii are in their drab winter plumage, which includes mottled brown backs and white breasts with a very noticeable black bib pattern below their chin. Their bright orange legs set them apart from other shorebirds you might see. Also, if you look closely, you can see a slight upturn in their bills which, as their English name implies, seems to help them turn over stones in search of insects and crustaceans. Their Hawaiian name, Akekeke, is similar to their call, which sounds a bit like kekekeke. See if you agree. By late April and May, you might notice that most akekeke have molted into their breeding plumage so they can be more attractive to the opposite sex. They have a beautiful black and ruddy or red-brown pattern of feathers on their backs and striking black and white patterns on their face and breast. Our akekeke make a non-stop migration across the northern Pacific to Alaska, a flight which likely takes them three to four days. 
Like many shorebirds, they spend the summer on breeding grounds high up in the Arctic to take advantage of abundant food resources during the long Arctic summers. The males and females arrive at about the same time, set up very exclusive territories in the tundra to keep out other akekeke, and they build their nest in a scrape on the ground. Both parents feed and care for up to four keiki in the nest, and if resources that summer are good, and they manage to escape predation by foxes or jaegers, the juveniles will get together in small flocks to make their first trip to Hawaii by late August, with most adults arriving a week or two before that. Our Akekeke are considered to be an indigenous species, meaning that they're found naturally here as well as other parts of the world. The worldwide population size was recently estimated to be about a half a million birds, and unlike many of our other native bird species, populations of Akekeke appear to be relatively stable. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Time now for your backyard quiz answer. We asked you for the name of the beloved and respected older brother of the first president of the Republic of China, Sun Yat-sen. Yat-sen defeated the Manchus and inspired a nation, and with the help of his older brother, Sun Mei, also known as S. Ami in Hawaii, which is the answer to today's back quiz, a backyard quiz. Without Sun Mei, the revolution may not have been possible. He provided Yat-sen with an education at both Iolani and Punahou, which gave him knowledge of Western government and philosophy. As the efforts to overthrow Manchu rule spread and revolution filled the minds of many, uh, Sun Mei's home became a hub for activists and politicians. Mei himself went back to China and even helped to lead early uprisings against the Manchus. He eventually dedicated his entire fortune to his brother's efforts to establish the Republic of China. So while Sun Yat-sen has staked a place in history books, Sun Mei's unwavering loyalty to his brother and the revolution remains mostly uh, forgotten. But the story remains as an example of the strength of brotherly love, family, and nation. And we had no winners today. We stumped you on that one. But that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one you'd like to share, write to TalkBack at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Carlos Amfroy, M.D., ophthalmologist and eye surgeon, and Hawaii Public Radio listener, fan, and station member since 1987. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Mark Wolin, author of It Didn't Start With You. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how inherited family trauma shapes who we are and how to end the cycle. Beginning Sunday morning at 11.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Nohea Gallery at Kahala Mall with gift ideas from Hawaii's artists, including handcrafted jewelry, handmade pottery, original art, and custom prints. NoheaGallery.com. Islander Sake Brewery has lots to be thankful for this holiday season. It opened just two days before the pandemic shutdown, and the last two years have been quite the challenge. It had originally planned to open on the Big Island, and when it couldn't find a suitable space, it opened up in Kaka'ako instead. But this year, the company moved to Puako, and it has just set up shop at the Monica Beach Hotel. It's produced three batches of its sake, and Vice President Tamahirose says... He's quite happy with the results. More mineral-rich water, he says, has produced a more aromatic beverage. He's optimistic about the company's future and grateful for the community's support throughout its rough start. In Japan, the traditionally, people drink the high-quality sake for New Year's Day. So uh, for us, sake brewer, it's very important to produce the high-quality sake for coming uh, New Year. Uh, which is 2023 year of rabbit. So we already printed the rabbit picture uh, in front of the bottle. So uh, because we just finished uh, producing sake, we have to let the sake settle for maybe one week or so. So uh, we're going to bottle the sake and we'd like to deliver to the retail or restaurant in Big Island. And also we'd like to ship back to the Honolulu to the deliver the customer who has supported our brewery in past two years, which is really hard time uh, during the COVID time, uh, but they supported. So we wanted to show the sign of appreciation by giving them the high-quality sake from Big Island. I think I first bought your sake at the little sake shop there, I think, off Cook Street? Yes, Nadine's uh, and Malcolm's uh, sake shop. Yeah, so where else can people uh, uh, buy your product? Right now, you can buy online through the Kakak Wine, and also some of the items we can sell to you directly in our Islander Sake homepage. And also, if you go Waikiki within the Ritz Carlton Hotel, there is a Dean and Deluga Cafe. Uh, they carry our sake also. I was looking at that website, and you also have a byproduct in the whole sake process that you also sell. When we make sake, we use uh, only four things: rice yeast and koji fungus and water. So after we squeeze sake out from the tank, there is the fermented rice remain. We call sake katsu, or uh, some of the local folks here called sake no katsu. Uh, these sake katsu can be used for cooking. You marinate with meat, fish, or even vegetable. Uh, you can make a very good vegetable pickles. Uh, so these are really uh, many restaurant chefs and also housewives, uh, they like to buy uh, because it's fresh. Uh, it's much, much better than uh, bringing over from Japan. So we are selling this sake katsu uh, 
uh, along the uh, other bottles of sake. So yeah, this byproduct then is a value-added uh, gift that you can also or a product. Yeah, we we not really throwing away. So everything sake and liquid, and also the solid part sake kasu also can be used for cooking. And I understand that you have a restaurant uh, in Honolulu as well? Uh, yes. During the pandemic, the liquor commission asked us to serve food. Uh, there was no bar operation permitted. Without, so we have to serve food. So fortunately, the Japanese sushi chef came to us. Uh, he offered his help. So we started uh, sushi and the sake pairing in Kakako. And so we moved that function to Chinatown. So 25 North King Street is the location. So we offer sushi, kaiseki, omakase course uh, for $120 per person. And so you can bring your own liquor. Uh, sake uh, doesn't have to be island sake or a beer or shochu. So you can enjoy the your liquor with the, our sushi and the other Japanese dishes. But that's so interesting that then this was born out of the pandemic. You know, in order to survive, you had to provide food. And so this concept for a new business then is born. You know, when we finally started selling the sake, that was, uh, I think, March 16th of 2020, uh, just two days before the city's lockdown. We offered a curbside store people in the condominium around the Kakako, uh, they came over and after they drink our sake, they brought back the empty bottle. Uh, they supported us 100%. They told us the time like that, they want to support the local company. Uh, we are very grateful uh, people supported our little tiny sake brewery just opened before the pandemic. So. We are so lucky we supported. Now we moved to the Big Island. After we received the liquor license, we quickly start uh, fermenting the sake. Uh, sake making process usually takes three weeks. So during the you know sake making, the Mauna Loa uh, started erupting. We felt again, you know, the first time we opened the brewery in Honolulu, we had the COVID. And now we started brewing here, we have a volcano erupting. Uh, but fortunately, again, Mauna Loa quiet again. But it's interesting. During the time of uh, lava flowing, and uh, sometimes we hear the earth glowing or shaking, our microorganisms, they did very good job producing the high-quality sake. I think not many sake brewery producing the uh, sake during the lava it's coming down from the volcano. So I think this part is really memorable for us. So, and I hope the customer or your listeners uh, enjoy our sake to make feel, you know, have feel how Hawaii nature can produce such a delicious sake. When we started here, uh, the location in Hapuna Beach, the location was former restaurant not used for many years because so when we went into this restaurant location we call up the hawaiian priest 
to ah. you know do the ceremony. Yes, blessing, uh, blessing ceremony mm-hmm. before we actually start. Good idea. Uh, Danny Akaka he bless this location because he worked for Mount Aloha Resort also. So so Danny Akaka he you know just you know, kept walking within the property, telling the spirit. You know, he has uh, two Japanese came over from Japan. They they are just trying to start make sake. You know, they don't like to make any other noise, but they sincerely uh, make sake here. And he told uh, a spirit around here. Mm-hmm. And since then, we had much, much good feeling. Akaka said, long time ago, uh, this location was owned by Parker Ranch. There was a paniolo or a cowboy from Japan. There were many Japanese cowboys. Uh, they are actually good, you know, the chasing the cows and so on. But during the nighttime, they made sake in Waimea. And so, long time ago, the Japanese cowboy at Parker Ranch, uh, they, made, they already made a sake here. And uh, so, we did not worry about making sake here because we are not fast. A uh, long time ago, our ancestor already uh, made sake here, and now we are restarting the process again here. So we are so grateful uh, after, you know, we had the Hawaiian blessing here. That was Tama Hirose, vice president of Island Sake Brewery. It recently moved its production from Kaka'ako here on Oahu to Big Island's west side, and it is settling in and looking forward to a new year. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, the mystery of how a deer carcass got in the waters off Kihei Maui. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or you can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online or on our website or by searching The Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.